I really couldn't have imagined anything like this. It's, it was an incredible case. So brutal, such a crime of passion. I was amazed. The more I investigated it, the more amazed I was. Just a very, very, very brutal case. I don't, I don't think they'd ever seen anything like this before in Bedford County, Virginia, this kind of brutal murder. It was a huge news story. Hello and welcome to the podcast, The Yen's Soaring Case, A New Verdict. In the course of 10 episodes, I'll be looking at the 1990 trial of Jens Soaring together with Dr. Ralph Gies-Rube, judge and president of the Hanover Regional Court. We'll examine expert opinions on the legality of the conviction, and of course, we'll look at the charges that led to the trial. Together, we'll discuss whether there would be a conviction today, based on what we have learned since 1990. Would Jens Soaring be found guilty if the trial were held now, against the background of new DNA evidence and new insights into the famous sock print? What are the differences between the German and the American legal systems from a judge's point of view? Hello, Ralph. Welcome. And thank you for joining me in this podcast as a legal expert and sharing your assessment of the case with our listeners. Hello, Daniela. My pleasure. In the opening sequence, we just heard the author Bill Sizemore. As an expert in junk science or pseudoscientific forensics, Chris Fabricant adds his own take on the case. It's very, you know, sensational and it has all the elements that make for very high profile cases, right? They're white people, they're middle class people, they're educated people, they, um, there's sex, there's money, those are all those are um, very titillating to the media. And that is not a recipe for due process. It's a recipe for sensationalism and for the general public to have lots of opinions about, you know, really case facts and details that they really don't know anything about. Ralph, I'm glad you're discussing this controversial case with me. What does it mean for a judge to deal with such a special and high-profile case? Well, it is indeed a challenge. However, it is commonplace for a judge to conduct a criminal trial in a high-quality fashion, following the formal legal requirements, and to rule on the case strictly according to the law. As a judge, one has to put aside any populist considerations or pressures. A criminal case, of course, stands and falls with the person dispensing justice. Would you please explain to us the role and responsibilities of the judge? Well, at least in Germany, the judge rules on guilt and innocence in criminal proceedings. And he does so independently, based on the applicable law. Independently means that he is not bound by instructions. Instead, he must act according to his conscience and his conviction. That's what judges are trained for. And in Germany, they are appointed for life, which ultimately ensures their independence. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. 
Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Thus, they don't risk criticism for an unpopular verdict. They don't have to fear that they might lose their job over a controversial ruling. This is a crucial difference to the situation in the United States, particularly in Virginia, where the judge is dependent on local members of the state legislature who must confirm his office every six years. This might cause the judge to wonder how the public perceives him and ultimately decide in a not entirely independent manner. In the Yen Soaring case, not only the trial itself, but also the position of the judge and the methods that led to this trial in the first place are being discussed very controversially. The high-ranking British police officer and expert on interrogation methods, Andy Griffiths, comments on this as follows. But looking at the product of that interview and its effect on the case, I don't think it was a reliable confession, um, and, and, that, and it was an important part of, of his trial. In the Soaring Haysom case in particular, the judge at the time, William Sweeney, was very controversial. Also, the administration of justice is very different from that in Germany. In Virginia, the judge himself decides whether he should withdraw from the case because of possible bias. From proceedings against the Red Army faction in Germany, I know of examples where the judge had to step down from a trial after the 86th challenge on the grounds of bias. It turned out that he had provided journalists with documents during ongoing proceedings. Gail Marshall, the former Deputy Attorney General of Virginia, has worked on Yen Suring's behalf since 1995. The judge before the trial uh, was quoted in a published magazine article saying, I don't think that Elizabeth thought he would take her there, obviously saying he thought Elizabeth simply dared him to do it and was surprised when Yens actually committed the murder. I mean, to express an opinion on the guilt or innocence of someone who's coming before you in a trial and to do it in a public magazine is just an unthinkable ethical breach. The issue of bias must be evaluated entirely differently when comparing Germany and the United States. First of all, it is important to understand that under German law, a concern over bias exists when an objective observer finds sufficient grounds that the judge cannot decide independently and strictly according to the law. And if that is the case, a panel of other judges removes the trial judge regardless of whether he objectively feels that there is a conflict of interest. In the Soaring case, we have the problem of a judge making tendentious statements to the media even before the trial began. And of course, this can create the impression among objective observers that this judge is no longer impartial. In Germany, if the suspicion of bias is substantiated, the judge is replaced. In Virginia, however, the judge himself decides whether a conflict of interest exists. It's an entirely different system. The question of bias does not depend on the view of an objective or neutral observer, but simply on the judge's own subjective opinion. That is a significant difference as compared to German law. In Virginia, I talked with numerous people about the trial. Most told me that the overall conditions underlying the trial, such as the jury selection by the prosecuting attorney's wife, 
The numerous conflicting statements by Elizabeth and the intense media presence were a disaster waiting to happen. For the first time in Virginia, a trial was broadcast live from the courtroom, focusing on a young defendant from another country, Germany. Of course, you have to consider the local context. The crime and the subsequent trial did not occur in a big city such as New York, but in a small town with a population of 3,000. In a place like that, you have very strong interest from the media and the public in getting the accused not only put on trial, but also ultimately convicted. And here, too, it may be assumed that these circumstances ultimately created a situation where it was difficult to give Yen Soaring a completely fair trial. Here's what Gail Marshall has to say about this. Um, another unusual um, thing was that um, the judge was a friend of the family. He's not a close friend, but he had gone to um, high school uh, with Riss Benedict, who was the brother of the um, father, the one who was murdered. Regarding the question of bias, you have to differentiate whether the judge merely went to school with the brother of a victim, and therefore, they know each other. In that case, even under German law, no one would think of viewing this as bias. One would say that the overall professional attitude includes the ability to keep the necessary distance even in the process of arriving at a decision. But if it is really a friendship in the sense of a constant exchange of information, of meetings, and so on, then the relationship is too close. And then we would say that it is better if another judge decides on the case, one who does not have this closeness. Some people also told me off the record that there was some wheeling and dealing and a premature rush to judgment. Today, many in Virginia believe that Jens never really had a chance, let alone a fair trial. Trial observer Tammy Martin comments on that. I think the part that bothers me the most is that Yen's case was used to further the prosecutor's career as well as the investigator's career. I knew early on when Jens was convicted of the murders, I felt like something wasn't right. How can you convict someone on a sock print? And this was before I knew anything about the, the DNA and the dermal ridges. And I just felt something was not right. I would like to discuss with you the aspect of emotionality because when you talk publicly about case, subjective perceptions do play a role. But I think for a judge, these aspects and perceptions are irrelevant. Yes, in principle, a judge must not have preconceived ideas at this point, but must apply the law to the best of his knowledge and belief. But in this case, it is a matter of personal interests of the individuals involved, namely, the prosecutor or the presiding judge, both of whom hold elective offices and are thus under enormous pressure to deliver results. Add to that the fact that Yen spent several years in custody pending his extradition to the U.S. and that he had made a confession. What follows is the pressure of high expectations, 
ultimately, everything stands and falls with that. Which is why, from the outset, no one had an interest in establishing the innocence of Jens soaring, if necessary. It was only a matter of arriving at a quick guilty verdict. You just mentioned a very important point. The controversy between the two former investigators, Chuck Reed and Ricky Gardner, seems to be an important aspect of the case. Both of them are retired today. Chuck Reed is convinced of Jens's innocence. However, he points out the moral guilt, that is, Jens's false confession and flight to protect his girlfriend. Ricky Gardner, regardless of all the new evidence that has emerged, insists on Jens's guilt and actually carried a copy of the sock print with him until his retirement. To this day, he denies that an FBI suspect profile was created after the murders. Chuck Reed comments on that. But I guess my point now is that six months investigation, once Ricky got to England, that was over there for four days, and then they get the false confession, they, then the jury indicts him. This first six months investigation that, that uh, the Commonwealth attorney and everybody discussed and the FBI looked at a female uh, was just totally flushed, I guess, kicked under the rug. That, that's where I got a problem. How can anybody forget all that evidence, even though it was circumstantial evidence? Want to learn more about Jens Sering and the Hazel murders? Chuck Reed, the leading investigator at the time, has compiled exclusive material for you and commented on it. Previously unpublished evidence, excerpts from trial files in Sering's diary, as well as explosive lab results. Get his report at www.sering-case.com. You can also find the link in the show notes. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. What impression does such a controversy create? It shows the case's problematic nature. Ricky Gardner flies to London and obtains a confession there. And with that, the enormous pressure on him is removed for the time being. He flies back to Virginia and the case is closed for him. That means that an indictment is drawn up, and from this point on, no further investigations are conducted to determine Jens Soaring's role in the murders. Nobody asks whether the confession is actually correct and based on what really happened. And during the subsequent trial, the sole focus is on the adversarial interaction between the prosecutor and the defense counsel, both of whom pursue entirely different interests. And that is the crucial difference to Germany, where the police and the public prosecutor's office make an effort to be the most objective authorities in the world. They rightly call themselves that because, in addition to incriminating circumstances, they also always take into account exonerating circumstances. Right up to the final summation, they base their decisions on both kinds of evidence, both for and against the accused. And with regard to the Jens Zuring case, on the basis of what has just been said, one can clearly see that it was different there. 
I am, of course, aware that we too have an obligation to be objective and listen to all sides. This was very important to me, which is why I submitted interview requests to Ricky Gardner, Elizabeth Hasem, and other individuals involved in the case who are convinced of Jen Soaring's guilt. Some of them never got back to me, but Gardner actually threatened to have me arrested, and I felt like I was stirring up a hornet's nest. That was really interesting. I also tried to contact the former judge's wife because I wanted to discuss with her the aspect of her husband knowing the victim's family. Perhaps one should add that the whole thing happened several decades ago, and for Ricky Gardner in particular, the case accompanied and dominated his entire career. He was a rookie when the Hasem murders occurred. This was his very first homicide case. And then one is so affected on the subjective level, on their relationship level, that one is no longer open to factual arguments and unable to deal with objective observers like you in an interview. You see behavior like that every day. It's human nature. Sheriff Chip Harding told me something similar. He said he repeatedly asked for documents. All he got was a bunch of lies to the effect that these documents didn't exist, that the evidence didn't exist. This is what he told me, among other things. So we said, we've only got about 50 photographs that we were able to obtain by going down to the Bedford courthouse. Chuck Reed, who was there in the original investigation, said there were literally several hundred photographs taken. So we called the Lynchburg Police Department and they had the crime scene folks that came in and processed the scene for Bedford and said, can we come down and look at everything you got? And they said, we turned it all over to Bedford when the case, you know, as, as the case proceeded. Of course, Bedford would have no contact with us. Wouldn't even give us, can we come down and talk to you for 15, 20 minutes? No, we don't have time to talk to you. So we never had access to see, is this an another, I can't say it's intentional or non-intentional, but is this more exculpatory evidence that the jury never heard? Ultimately, the problem was that the authorities wanted to meet the expectations of local society and to give them a sense of security. We must remember that this was an exceptionally brutal crime which demanded precisely this type of response. It was crucial to present a perpetrator, and in this context, considering a possible acquittal of Jens Soaring would have been really difficult. This is the background against which to explain the dynamics of the case. Add to this the fact that in 1990, they didn't really know how often false confessions occurred. Today, we have numerous new insights into all kinds of subjects. Plus, we can assess the judge's attitude differently. Andrew Griffiths has this to say. No, again, I think you have to be fair to people. And this was 1986. And it's fair to say that the level of, of knowledge and the body of knowledge around the way in which to interview people was very, very different then. So again, you, you've got to be very careful. Of course, so when, when I was doing this, this, this case, you are, of course, looking at the quality of the evidence and its reliability, but it would be unfair to apply certain standards to the officers working at that time if they didn't have the training. So I, I know what the interview training was like in, in the UK in 1986. 
I also know a little bit about the US. So, you know, whilst it's legitimate to make observations about the objectivity and the fairness of the interview that was conducted, it, it's not right to unfairly apply the standards of 2022 to the officers of that time who, who didn't have access to the training and the knowledge that we now have. I can imagine the great pressure resting on a judge when dealing with such an extraordinary case, and on top of it, an allegedly false confession. False confessions are not that uncommon, especially when relationships are involved. In 2002, for example, a German actor confessed to committing an armed robbery resulting in death. His aim was to protect his then-wife, who had instigated the robbery. This was later uncovered, but only after the man had already served several years in prison. He was subsequently acquitted in a retrial. In the German legal system, the truthfulness of every confession must be examined and questioned, so that one cannot, for example, dispense with the collection of evidence because someone confessed to the crime. A confession does not dispense with the necessity of questioning witnesses to the crime right away or scrutinizing the complexity and the contents of the confession for contradictions and inconsistencies. None of this took place in the Haysom case after Jens Soaring confessed. Just consider the fact that the indictment was drawn up after only five days, based solely on the confession made to Ricky Gardner. And after the indictment was announced, the investigation was closed. I don't want to speculate at this point, but do you think that those involved in the case realized that they should have taken these additional steps? Well, their role is actually defined differently. That's how the legal system works in the U.S. And I would like to stress quite clearly here that it's not up to me to criticize that. Every society creates its own legal system, and as far as that goes, the U.S. is organized according to due process requirements and the rule of law. However, as I see it, our system in Germany is less prone to error because, as I said, the authorities have the obligation to investigate in favor of a suspect, not just against him. Any lead that speaks for the defendant's innocence has to be pursued, not just leads that tend to incriminate him. If I understand you correctly, this means that your critique of the trial is based on the point of view of a German judge, but that you basically believe the American procedures are sound. Americans certainly accept and appreciate them the way they are. It's a culture that evolved over centuries and one that works for them. But it may be prone to risks, which we try to avoid in Germany by putting a premium on objectivity instead of the subjective interests of individual actors. Most folks in Germany are familiar with the outcome of the 1990 trial against Jens Söring. He was sentenced to two life terms. In most US states, a life sentence means that, unlike in Germany, you spend your whole life behind bars. Most inmates sentenced to life will die in prison in geriatric wards. Best-selling American author John Grisham comments on that. Jens spent 30 plus years in prison, in various prisons, for a crime he had nothing to do with. It, he was an innocent man, and he was convicted for murdering two people. 
This was the first episode of our podcast series, The Case Against Jens Soaring, A New Verdict. We discussed whether the role of the judge in the trial of Jens Soaring was questionable and what role it plays for a judge to preside over criminal proceedings through a prominent criminal trial. In the next episode, the focus is on Jens Soaring's confession, which he claims is a false confession. Are false confessions really uncommon? What forms of false confessions are there? Subscribe to the podcast to never miss a thing. Thanks for listening. You're Daniela Hillers.